Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Bishop, your host for Our Children Can't Wait, a new podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Before we dig into a whole series of conversations, here's a little bit about me. I've worn many hats in education and policy, and I'm currently the executive director of UCLA's Center for the Transformation of Schools. Not only is Our Children Can't Wait a podcast, but it's also a book. I spent the past few years writing and editing the book with 25 other contributors who you'll hear from more in future episodes. Our Children Can't Wait is available now from Teachers College Press. Today's episode, I just want to warn you, is going to feel a little bit different, though, from future episodes. The script is flipped, and I'm interviewed by my colleague and friend, Dr. Tyrone Howard, professor of education at UCLA. Tyrone also happens to be a contributing author for Our Children Can't Wait. So let's take a listen. Welcome. My name is Tyrone Howard, professor of education at UCLA. And also, I serve in the role as faculty director of the UCLA Center for the Transformation of Schools. And I have the pleasure, the distinction, the honor to be able to spend a little time with one of my favorite people, uh, someone who he probably doesn't realize, but I learned more from him than he recognizes, one of the more knowledgeable minds you will find in the field of education, Dr. Joseph Bishop. How you doing, sir? Dr. Howard, good to be here. Good to have you interviewing me. It's a good change. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, I'm excited about a project that has been a labor of love for you. I'm glad that you are in the space of getting ready to give birth again, not the actual birth, because we know that your beautiful wife, Kristen, has done that three times over. But this is your first birth with your, your new book that's forthcoming, which is, I think, aptly titled Our Children Can't Wait. So can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to write the book? Our Children Can't Wait. And the ideas of the book have been ruminating in my mind for probably my entire life, to be honest with you, Tyrone. When you're growing up in your community and you leave your community, you work in other places, you get to know other people, you realize how different every place is. I was thinking about this, that out of graduate school, I was working at an organization. It was in central LA, South LA too, over in Pico Union. And I remember leaving Pasadena, getting on the metro, taking two bus lines, and then walking. And honestly, naively, for the first time in my life, seeing students at schools with just black tops, no green space, not seeing any grocery stores, seeing lots of cars. There were folks living on the streets, but life was just moving along. And I was just thinking even how radically different that morning commute was going from Pasadena to South and Central LA to get to my job, to a place where we were training elected officials on education issues. And all we were talking about was standards, teacher preparation, higher education accountability. And we weren't talking at all about systemic structural issues in our society around housing, you know, access to nutritious foods, kids and families having access to open green space. And I think for me, you know, th this kind of professional disconnect stayed with me <laughs> also in previous experiences, seeing that, okay, what we're talking about seems detached from people's lives, from my friends, from my colleagues, but, but we're going to stay in this kind of safe space. So our children can't wait was really an opportunity to set a new vision of really what I think, and I think millions of people would say what the world needs for a more just, equitable, 
world centered on young people as our biggest asset. So this is kind of like a, a playbook, a policy playbook of top experts in the country showing how all these issues are tied together to create healthy spaces for young people inside and outside of schools. And that's why I assembled this team because I realized, A, I didn't, I couldn't talk about everything. B, I, I wasn't the best person to speak to it. And there's just so many knowledgeable people who could be brought together to write this book, to edit it and co-author it together. Yeah. So you gave me a lot there to kind of really chew on. And I want to see if we can dig a little deeper on some of those factors, because we know, Joe, that policies have always existed around education. Uh, Part of what I hear you saying is the fact that many of those policies don't work for everybody. And some of those policies are really siloed and they don't really inform and build upon each other. So why do you think policies are so fragmented and so not connected to the daily lives of people, especially for those individuals who come from low-income backgrounds or for families of color? Yeah, I think the reality is in traditional policy spaces like Congress, state houses, city councils, majority of people making decisions are white, come from privileged backgrounds like myself, and policy is ultimately shaped based on lived experience and who's at the table. And to a large degree still in the United States, those tables uh, are not racially, economically, culturally diverse. Um, and that that is the primary driver for kind of a policy landscape in which we live that is really inequitable. I think that's that's kind of the, the biggest issue, the who. And then there's also the, the what. Brian Stevenson talks about the power of proximity. Mm-hmm. And I think many policymakers are not proximate to the issues that are affecting people in their community. So until folks get closer to one another and closer to the neighborhoods where policy is, is most needed, we're going to stay in this place that either replicates or reinforces where we stand as, as a country. So I think that's that there's a who and there's a what dimension. There's a how, I think. Mm-hmm. The process of policy is still really elusive mm-hmm. by design. It's a, you know, based on our history and how we thought about, you know, who, who should have power, could landowners vote, you know, what, what's a human, you know, who, who, sh- who should be able to, to determine their future. So voting rights, yeah, citizenship, the census, all these issues have reflected that we really haven't valued people in the same way, especially people of color historically. Um, so that, that how and that process has been again, largely an exclusive club, but I think is changing, but there's a long ways to go for a better policy future for our country. So if I can build on that for a second. So in many ways, I think as I've gotten older, Joe, I've become a little more cynical because I think folks fall into one of two camps, either they don't know or they don't care. Mm. And what I hear you saying is you think in many ways, folks just don't know because you raised the proximity piece. So you think if, if legislators and policymakers and elected officials had greater access and greater awareness and more uh, insight into the day-to-day lives of, of people on the margins that they might craft policy differently, draft legislation differently. Is that, is that a fair read? I think, I think it's a start. I definitely don't think it's, uh, to your point, even folks who know that things should change sometimes do everything in their power to keep things the way they are, I think because of fear, insecurity, mm-hmm. or just not knowing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I think the the way to cut through all that is honestly through building relationships with folks 
through having meals, through saying hi to somebody, through, I mean, just, just mm-hmm. relationship is a way that we can counteract a lot of that, but easier said than done in our structures and the, the fact that we're so hyper-segregated, mm-hmm. everything is politicized. You're asked what camp you're on from the get-go. It, it makes it harder to build those bridges in a way that will, will allow for folks to, to care yeah. and jump from the, the knowing to doing space and doing something about it. Yeah. Not in a savior way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in a way of collaborative, like in partnership, I want to, you're going to make my life richer. I want to make your life richer in the, in the same way that I think you and I learn a lot from each other, Tyrone. Mm-hmm. And our, our upbringing is very different, but there's mutual respect and appreciation and we push each other to be better people. And I think you need more of those types of friendships, relationships to happen mm-hmm. in every every community, every yeah. workplace, every church, every yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. So let's let's go deeper. The book writing process is is more than a notion. And for those who have never done it before, if you try to give a description of it, it's it's the full range of emotions from highs to lows to uncertainties to being overwhelmed to being unclear, feeling like you finally found a track. At times, you feel like you're off track. I want to hear you talk for a second, Joe, about two things. What have you found to be the most exciting part of writing this book, enjoyable part of writing this book? And what have you found to be the most challenging part of writing this book? I think once you overcome your fear of writing one sentence after another (laughs) (laughs) and failing and going back, you see words on paper that and clarity in your mind that exists five paragraphs down that you didn't see when you first started. Clarity about yourself, clarity about your role. And I think that's that's the hardest part, but also the most rewarding part of writing, that you're so in your head, but it's that rare experience mm-hmm. to be in your head, mm-hmm. to think about ideas in new ways mm-hmm. and to make, make sense of them through your words. But the, I think that the challenging part for this book really was honestly, it's an edited book. So we have experts on different issues who've come together to draw connections to education, experts in housing, health, segregation, the juvenile justice system, funding, Mm -hmm. community safety. So the challenge for that is how do you create a way for everyone to share their expertise in a way that's actionable for somebody who picks up our children can't wait. And I think for me, that was the hardest thing for me to figure out, okay, if if I'm writing a few chapters and we have other authors, Mm -hmm. how do we make sure their voice is heard, Mm -hmm. but there's some continuity across the chapters? I think that was challenging, but incredibly rewarding. That that whole experience has been rewarding and it's still still happening. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think we're still making sense of what the book means for people and even how they interpret it. Yeah. And also, I, I will say that having the experience too, of writing a book before and having no publisher interested, <laughs> which, which has happened to me before. Talk about that for a second. How'd that happen? Yeah. Well, I was obsessed with how do you get kind of a lot of the themes of this book? How do you get people to care about others who they may not know or understand mm-hmm. or even agree with? So, you know, did tons of interviews, wrote the book over several years, and then there was no interest. So... Mm. I think I learned in that experience that there's you have to not go alone and go with other people. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to write this book with others yeah. because it's it's just much more much more rich experience yeah. to go together instead of going alone. Yeah. And edited volumes are great to read because you get a lot of the 
diversity of expertise, as you mentioned. You get folks from all over the country, if not the world in some cases. But sometimes that can be hard because you're trying to like herd cats in many ways. But I'm curious as to what, if anything, surprised you in the writing of this book? What surprised me is how willingly people jumped in together. Mm-hmm. Most folks who didn't know each other, most mm-hmm. folks who still haven't met each other, we all connected via Zoom. Some folks we worked together for several years or for many years in some instances. So it reminded me that it doesn't matter where you stand professionally, even if you're considered an expert in the field, you want to be part of something. Uh, folks want their voices to be heard and they want to see impact during their lifetime. So I think for me, it was, I was kind of humbly reminded, like, these are some amazing experts who you would, you hold up on this level, but they also are very much human and they want it. They want their work to get out there and to be part of something. So I think that was a great reminder for me that, um, you know, don't fear asking people for help or to do something with you because Mm -hmm. they still have something to gain from the process. And I think a lot of, a lot of people have, have ideas, not just about books, but they're fearful to ask for help or to say, what do I need to do to, to go from this point to that point. So I, th- I think it applies to much more than book writing, kind of putting yourself out there. Unless you try it, you just never know. Yeah, but I think part of this too, Joe, you're being a little modest here because there are folks who could put out a call for a book and no one would answer the call, right? <laughs> so as much as, they, <laughs> as much as they want to have their work seen, I'm going to toot your horn a bit because I think I've watched you for the last five, six years. I've watched the way you move in spaces and, and people respect you highly. People admire your knowledge and they, they know you have a depth and breadth of wisdom around educational issues. And so I think uh, it's not just the call that people are interested in, it's who uh, makes the call. And I think you making the call and assembling this amazing group of scholars means something because not everyone can do that. So kudos to you on that, because I think when readers get a chance to see this work, they'll see that that this is a real, really impressive group of folks who are doing this work in so many different ways. So uh, you wrote this book. Obviously, you write it because you believe that we can change, that we need to change, that we must change. What gives you optimism as you as you think about this project? What gives me optimism is that there is a hunger in our country for more integrated ways of thinking about policy, working across boundaries, across organizations, across even political lines in ways that I don't think really has existed for a while. Well, for maybe decades, years, and and COVID, COVID has taken the lives of well over a million people and totally has been traumatic for our country and has impacted families in different ways. I think it has, I hope, (laughs) helped us pause a little bit and reflect on what's important in life Mm -hmm. and what Mm -hmm. our role is, what's the role of of policy. When I talk to people about the book, be it teachers, lawmakers, people, philanthropy, neighbors, people will say, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I haven't seeing all these ideas kind of put together. So I think it it gives me hope that there's new ways of doing business. I think there's a a chapter in the book on how young people can be driving policy. I think there's a new appreciation for how young people should really be seen as more policy makers and shapers, not just 
folks sitting on the sidelines while, while the adults make the decision. So I, I do feel like there's, there's just, there's a new hunger for something better. And I think the, the trauma of, of COVID has just made that very, very apparent. I think you see new, new types of people running for office. Uh, you see people speaking up in ways maybe that we haven't seen before, but we still have our, our work cut out for us mm-hmm. to a large degree. But I think that one of the big messages in the book is that every, you know, whether you're a school board member, a city council member, state legislator, a member of Congress, whether you own a business, whether you're a leader in a church, a temple, synagogue, you you have a role to play to shape policy. And it's not an exclusive club anymore. It's been harmful to be an exclusive club. So now is the time to be part of that process and to shape policy. Little P, like the small things, which you may see as the little things, but also the big policies that you read about in the newspaper. Yeah. So I'm thinking about when I was some 30 years ago, an elementary school teacher in Compton. If you had come to me and talked to me about policy, I would have said there's no way I have any interest in policy because policy has nothing to do with me. Hmm. What would you say to that classroom teacher? What would you say to anybody in the educational space of what you hope they gain from this book that helps them to recognize that policy is relevant and meaningful to them? We are all policymakers in different spaces, whether or not we call ourselves that. As a parent, we set policies around <laughs> when, when can you go to practice after you finish doing your schoolwork after school? You know, how much reading have you done for, for teachers? The policies you set in your classroom around really procedures like how do students treat one another? Mm-hmm. What's our standard for completing quality work? What are our standards for for helping one another? I mean, those are. And even the length of the school day with principals. I mean, people set policies every second, every minute of the day in different spaces. Um, We just don't call it that or we're afraid to call it that. But I think when we start shifting the way we think about that, that word that might scare us and see us as policy shapers and makers and designers in every facet of our life, then whether you're a school teacher in Compton, a legislator in Sacramento, Mm -hmm. or a grandmother who's supporting your grandchild after school, you are establishing policies for for their life and for the lives of others. Yeah. I like that. We are all policymakers. And the way you explain that makes a lot of sense. And I wish someone would have explained that to me many years ago about the ways in which everything we do operates from some standard policy, set of principles, guidelines, et cetera. So what do you hope people gain from this podcast as a preview of the ideas of Our Children Can't Wait? You know, on, a, on a, a very basic level, I hope the readers of the book, the listeners of this podcast will be challenged to think about policy and these seemingly disconnected policies in very different ways. So I, I, I hope it kind of shifts their thinking a little bit. I also hope they find people and experts who they can go to and establish a connection with and say, wow, I really liked how you talked about that. What can I do more of? Or how can I enact this this big idea in my in my community, in my classroom? And then the third goal would be really to be inspired based on lived experiences. You know, you might say, well, I could have told you that, <laughs> that all these <laughs> issues are, are connected. I, I didn't need to read a book to, for, to believe that. But <laughs> I mean, the, the evidence is so clear that you talk, can't talk about the environment 
without talking about education. You can't talk about housing without talking about education. You can't talk about our history as a country and slavery mm-hmm. without acknowledging that it shapes policy and in, in, mm-hmm. in our in our society. So I think it might be affirming for some folks that look, I'm not crazy. I've been saying this my entire life and now this book shows that it's very apparent. So those are the the three three main things. Yeah. Give us a sense of how this podcast will come together around the ideas or around the core tenets of the book. Yeah, so we are going to hear from the authors of each chapter and we're going to flip flip the script a little bit. I'm going to be interviewing folks, but really we're going to better understand why these experts have become so passionate about these topics. Sometimes people in research don't share their story, but we're actually going to do some of that. Do do a, a quick dive into what are the personal drivers for why somebody is say passionate about an issue like segregation. Mm-hmm. We're also going to jump into what we can do about these overwhelming issues that that seem like they're like you can't dismantle or move them. And we're going to try to set the stage between each of the episodes in a way that makes it feel like one package of work that's all headed in the same direction. So that's the general format. And we wanted you, Dr. Howard, to to help set it up, especially because I had a chance to thank you personally for you really opened the door with Teachers College Press for me to submit this book proposal. Without you and your encouragement, honestly, it would not it would not be here. So you represent a whole host of folks who've been instrumental in my life and the lives of others to be courageous, try something new and put, push the envelope in a way that can hopefully help others. So that's the driver in the podcast is, is represents different people and figures who've been in my life in different ways who just so happen to be in many instances, experts and just very, very wise people. Yeah, but Joe, you know, this was only a matter of time. This book had to happen. Do you want to say uh, a drop a few of the names of, of folks who are who are a part of this book? So just to tease some of the listeners. Yeah. So in addition to Dr. Tyrone Howard, Dr. Sonia Douglas, Dr. Linda Darlene Hammond, Dr. Oscar Jimenez Castellanos, Dr. Erica Frankenberg, Jen Askew, Dr. Ron Astor, Dr. Angela James. I mean, there's just an amazing group. I could give you a quick bio for every person, but you're just going to have to wait and listen to hear more from these people because I know they're excited to speak to the listeners. So just hang tight, hold tight, I should say. That's right. That's right. Well, Joe, I want to say congratulations on on what I know is going to be an amazing and successful book project. Uh, We want to encourage all the listeners to go out and pick up three copies and tell their friends to pick up three copies because as the title says, our children can't wait. Given the the challenges that we see in public schools today, uh, we have to be solutions oriented and we have to see ourselves as a change that we want to be and that we need to see. So job well done, my friend. Proud of you. Thank you, Dr. Howard. Really appreciate you. My hope is that after today, you'll want to hear more from all the incredible authors, educators, and leaders associated with Our Children Can't Wait. There's 20 episodes, each with distinct but related themes. Join us on this journey of understanding a new way of thinking about policy in America. Please follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And most importantly, if you like what you hear, please, please, please share with friends, family, and coworkers who care about the issues we discuss. Thank you for listening. Mm
This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is a companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.